Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. A great conversation ahead with Michaela Peterson on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey, folks, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. I'm here with my buddy Vince Colonnais. And of course, we've got a really special guest for you. I know you guys are excited to see her. Vince, who do we have? We got Michaela Peterson joining the show today. Michaela Peterson is a podcaster, a CEO, and a public speaker. She's the host of that Michaela Peterson podcast. She's also the CEO of Luminate Enterprises. That's a company that deals with online psychological tools, social media, productions, PR, and events. Uh, and uh, she has uh, quite the reputation on her own, separate and distinct from uh, her father. Many people know Jordan Peterson. Great to have you with us today, Michaela Peterson. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's going to really, be fun. Really appreciate you doing this. You know, we uh, w- one of the cool things about your podcast that we uh, that both Jason and I have recognized is kind of fitting the mold of what we're attempting to do is that you try and bring in disparate views. You have a, an entire categorization of your podcast that's dedicated to bringing on experts in, um, on, in, in a subject from completely different perspectives and just asking them probing questions about like, what do these things mean and how did you arrive at these conclusions? Um, are, have you always kind of been just fundamentally curious? Are, are you are you not like a judgmental person? Do you not leap to conclusions about things? I think I was extremely judgmental. I think I'm still pretty judgmental. I don't know if I leap to conclusions, but I'm judgmental. And I think um, throughout my early 20s, I kind of got walloped a couple of times with beliefs that I held that were just wrong. And I think that happened enough that I was like, well, I'm not sure what to believe anymore. And there was a period of a few years, I can get into that, but there was a period of a few years where I was like, I don't know if anything I previously believed is true, is like what I seem or what I think. So I started the Opposing Views series because partly, partly because um, some of these contentious issues have such serious proponents on each side that it's hard to believe that both sides don't have some point. So I figured why not talk to both of them and people will come on and talk. And it's really interesting because I end up leaving kind of agreeing with both people usually. So Mm -hmm. people are usually arguing about the same, uh, different parts of the same argument, Mm -hmm. which has been strange, but I really enjoy it. What is the, what was the thing where you realized, is there an issue that you can tell us that, that you realize like, oh my gosh, like everything I believed about that was wrong or at least substantial portions of it. Yeah, I had I had an autoimmune disorder um, since a kid, so I've had that growing up, and I was you know entrenched in the medical system with immunosuppressants and surgeries and things, trying to get this autoimmune disorder under control. Mm-hmm. And when I was twenty three, and it wasn't working, I was really sick. I was on seven different medications, and I I was getting sicker. I wasn't getting better. And when I was twenty three, I kind of thought, okay, well, if the medical community isn't working, I better look at alternatives. And I ended up after like years of research, as I started researching when I was 19, I ended up on diet and I started experimenting with diet and ended up on a diet that put my autoimmune disorder into remission. 
I had an autoimmune disorder, chronic fatigue and major depressive disorder. And they all went into remission on diet and it was fast too. It was like three months. I was on a really restrictive paleo diet at that time. And it was, and my autoimmune disorder was severe. Like I've had my hip and ankle replaced when I was 17. So severe. And I talked to doctors about it and was like, why is this happening? I couldn't get off of all my medication. Why is this happening? And they're like, well, diet doesn't play a role. And after that, I was like, well, it does. (laughs) Obviously, like this is obvious. So after that, I think I was like, well, if the medical system is missing a component like diet in health, then what else is missing? And then the media went after my dad. And that happened at the same time. So it was like my autoimmune disorder went away. This incurable thing that I was supposed to be stuck up, stuck with forever. Yeah. It went away with diet. The media went after my dad and was portraying him in a manner that just didn't reflect reality, right? Like I was, I walked down the street in Toronto when he first went viral and he was on the front of the Metro, which I read on the way to school, um, being compared to Hitler. They called him like Fuhrer, Right. In, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, but still, like it's kind of it's a it's an intense thing to be tongue-in-cheek about. Yes. And so, those two things happened at the same time, and it was like medical system, the media, and after that, it was enough to kind of derail my belief in everything. I was like, well, does the government know what they're doing? Like, does does anybody who's an authority figure do they really know what they're doing, or do we just think they do? And then that just kind of made everything fall apart. And then it also made my, my belief, I think, in myself fall apart too. Because I was like, well, what is it that I've been telling people that I actually don't know about? Because I'd been one of the people that was like, oh, diet has nothing to do with your health. Diet doesn't have anything to do with your autoimmunity. Because that's what I've been told by the medical community. And I was like, well, I've been saying all these things. I was wrong. What else could I be wrong about? And I think I've kind of held that with me. So I'm I'm kind of curious, like I've never heard the idea that um that diet wouldn't have anything to do with autoimmunity. Like and and I mean diet has so much to do with inflammation, and inflammation is is what causes or exacerbates a lot of things, including lupus and and other things that you know uh, a lot of people in my family uh have been subjected to. And I've actually um well, I, I'm I'm also curious as to what is there a name for the autoimmune illness that you have? Yeah, I was originally diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Then mm. they changed it when I was 17 to juvenile idiopathic arthritis, but it was arthritis. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of things that I've read, even about rheumatoid arthritis, which my which my mother was subjected to, um, has basically said that diet has a big part of that. So I, you know, do you worry that maybe it was the particular doctors that you were visiting or is it just the medical establishment in general? I think it's the medical establishment in general. I mean, I went to um, doctors in Boston when my dad was at Harvard and then I was at the hospital for sick kids, uh, hospital for sick children in Toronto, which is one of the top children's hospitals in the entire world. Mm -hmm. And I was diagnosed in 2000 and Back then, like my, I remember my mom, cause my mom's kind of a hippie. My mom was like, well, should we look at diet? And we saw a lot of specialists and they all said no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 2015, when I went on diets, I went to immunologists and it was in Canada, but I went to 
numerous immunologists. I went back to my rheumatologists. Uh, everybody said there wasn't a link. And I think since 2015, people are potentially more aware, but you also, if you're really entrenched in the medical system, then they don't say there's a link. They say exercise more and eat healthy, but eat healthy is, you know, follow the food pyramid. Don't eat too much dessert, right? It's not actually, you know, potentially eliminate grains or eliminate dairy because those can be inflammatory for people, right? It's not specific like that. So I still think it's a problem with the med medical community. You have outlying doctors that, mm -hmm. that can treat you and doctors that treat with like paleo, a paleo diet or something like that, but it's definitely not the norm yet. I think it's getting there because of social media. I think people are more aware and people We're, in fitness, I think are more aware, but yeah, the general medical community definitely know. Were there individuals who helped you in this or was this kind of just you just doing web research? You described how you did a lot of research on your own and came to some conclusions about how you needed to try and change your diet. Yeah, this was, this was me. Um, I was pretty skeptical of people. So my mom had brought me to naturopaths as a kid mm -hmm. and like everything. I, I think she brought me to a witch doctor at one point. Like I was, I was really, really sick and she was really desperate. So I went everywhere. And I think because I went to so many different people, I didn't believe anybody anymore because you'll go to anybody and they go, oh yeah, you do this, take this supplement, do this. It'll do something. Nothing ever works. Um, so I was skeptical. So when I started, I started with peer reviewed studies, mm -hmm. looking up exactly how the medications I was on worked. Um, I went back to school for biomedical science and learned cell, enough cell biology and immunology so I could understand how some of these medications theoretically worked. So I started kind of in the wrong direction, but um, I, I ended up eventually on the role of like gluten in autoimmunity because there's actually peer reviewed studies showing that that can be a serious problem for people with autoimmune disorders. And I was like, well, why isn't, why didn't my doctors tell me about this link? I was like, oh, they don't know about the link. Okay. So yeah, I started there. Um, and then it wasn't until 2018. So like maybe two and a half years into dieting that I was like, oh, there are actual people who've written books on this kind of thing. But I was yeah. so far removed from that community that I didn't know that yeah. at the time. So as, as you're going through all of this now, like if you can transpose this on what we're going through at the moment, the, the pandemic and the way the governments have reacted to it. Um, yeah. Are you, are you unsurprised by the public distrust of the health establishment? We're seeing like, I think I saw a new survey that came out even today, that shows that we're reaching record lows of trust in the public health establishment. Of course, there's been a, a heavy intersection of politics, which definitely mm -hmm. uh, uh, colors people's opinions about these subjects. But uh, what have you been thinking as you've watched this and how it's related to your own uh, mistrust of, of institutions, in particular, the health institutions? Well, I, I think as soon as the pandemic hit and we figured out that it wasn't like going to be like the Spanish flu amount of deadly, right? So like maybe May or June, 2020, I think, because I, I can understand that everybody shut down everything because they're like, what is this? But I think as soon as that hit, I was like, I don't believe the severity. And like I said, I really don't trust, like I think authority in like large bodies of people making decisions with not enough data. Right. So I'm not surprised about lack of trust given the fact it's been years that this is going on, right? So, so people are going to 
get more and more fed up. I mean, if you see what's happening in Canada, it's crazy. They're still locked down. Toronto is still locked down, even though there isn't evidence that a booster helps the new variant. Sorry, what does it mean to be locked down? There's there's a lot of definitions of lockdown. In Toronto, what is it? Okay, um, major restaurants, you can only eat outdoors. Right. And it's the winter. So they've shut (sighs) down all outdoor dining. Um, We're supposed to tour there, right? But everything's at... 50% 50% capacity and they're not sure if it's going to open. They've shut down sporting games. Yeah. Um, you have to wear masks inside, although that's like a lot of the country, but that's, that's part of it. Anyway, you're not allowed gotcha. to have a wedding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and in Quebec, I didn't even mention this. So Quebec, um, there's a curfew past 10 PM. You can get arrested by police. If you're out past 10 PM. What's I, I can't even begin to imagine what the rational basis for a policy like that would be. There's, there is no rational basis for a policy like that. Like what's the explanation for that? They don't want people like, I guess if I thought about it, Montreal has a pretty big party culture and the bars are open till three. So maybe they don't want university students partying. Yeah. But yeah, it's not surprising that people don't have trust. Plus, everybody's like, if you look at America, especially if you travel and go to other countries, the average American is not a healthy person. Right. And the average American goes to the doctor, but then it's just turned around like, oh, well, you need to exercise more and eat better, where in my opinion, it's it's what certain people eat that's impacting yes. them negatively. And they're not told that by the medical system. So I'd say medical systems failed America at the moment. One in five people are on psychiatric medications. I think it's one in five people have an autoimmune disorder. Everybody's basically speaking, everybody's overweight, right? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, the only thing that I'm, I'm kind of questioning, I, I, I would push back on the idea that boosters don't have any effect because there are studies that actually say that. But I do agree with there you that- There are studies that literally say that they don't have an effect on Omicron. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, of course, you know, again, we, you will bring your studies, I would bring my studies, you know what I mean? The, the, the CDC study says 90%, it will keep you out of the hospital. Um, I don't but, even trust the CDC, though. Well, like, I, I, just... I get that. Like I said, you'll probably bring a study and I'll say, yeah, I don't trust that source. And I'll probably bring a study and you'll say, <laughs> I don't trust that source. And that's part of the point of, what we were talking about in terms of our show and yours, you know, is opposing view. So I, I'm, you know, we could get down that rabbit hole, you know, all day. Um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, is where we agree, which is, I don't know that it's the medical, I, th- I think medical establishment, I agree with you in many ways um, that particularly with this pandemic, because nobody really knows what it is. And then a new variant comes and they don't know what that is. And then everybody's trying to rush studies out. And then you find out that the, the, you know, uh, the methods of those studies are questionable. And then, you know, one study says one thing, another study says another. Um, so I, I, I get the confusion there. And I, 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 as a university professor myself, I have a little bit of empathy for that community because everybody's looking for answers quickly mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than, you know, because 
you know, time is of the essence. More people die the, the later that that comes. But I do think that there are people who are within the medical establishment. And I understand that you're saying there's maybe not a lot of specificity, but who say, um, who talk about diet um, and the role of diet in, in a lot of um, healthcare and what they get from a lot of Americans. And I'm going to sound like the conservative here is non-compliance too. There are a lot yeah, of people- I don't agree. I don't think so though, because when you go to like, when you go to the doctor and um, when you go to the doctor and they tell you to, to follow a diet, they don't say go low carb and doctors get in trouble for prescribing things like a low carb diet or a paleo diet, because it's not in like in the literature or it's not what's been okay. They're supposed to follow yeah. the food pyramid and right. the food pyramid doesn't work. And then they blame it on non-compliance and people overeating but people are overeating because they're surviving off of carbs primarily, which they shouldn't do. And that mm -hmm. research is so, so new that it hasn't made its way into the medical community yet. Although I think it's going to eventually. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I mean, for example, knowing people that have type two diabetes, they're always telling them low carb, not to eat certain things. You know, they tell them don't eat, you know, uh, sugary foods and, and dairy and, yeah, but then they're saying they're also saying drink orange juice because you also need to regulate your blood sugar and snack all the time. Don't fast like that kind of thing. So it's just like, yeah. like I agree partly with what you said, because there are doctors who know for sure. And if you're lucky enough to get a doctor who knows, then that could save your life. But generally speaking, the medical guidelines, if you look at what doctors are actually taught, that's not what they're taught yet. Like they're not saying only drink water. Well, you know, also, we've we've created these circumstances in our culture, and I think it's like it's it's reaching across the planet, but it definitely exists in the United States, where we've almost fully destigmatized being overweight and personal control for that to the extent that it exists. And in, in most people's cases, it does exist. You can control uh, the your weight, with obvious exceptions to that. Uh, and so, you know, there's that. I think as a culture, like we've strayed too far in the direction of you know this idea of like positive body acceptance regardless of size it's it's destructive it's like it's it's what we used to refer to as enabling like if somebody's engaged in a destructive tendency the caring and the empathetic thing to do is to help them and to support them and to get them to a state of of improvement rather yeah, than Vince, the the only thing that i that i'll say to that is um overweight and and this has been proven and this is something that i i think i don't know if michaela will agree with me here but um the medical community sets these objective ideas of what overweight is. And that's problematic. People have different body types. You know, we, you know, we have this idea of this is overweight. This is not a healthy weight. This is, if you're talking about people who are morbidly obese, I agree with you. Right. But, but if, I just you know, mean that like, it's measurable, Jason, to say that certain negative health outcomes are higher in people who reach certain weights. I mean, that's just true. And that's, yeah, but course, I, I think also that, there, there's this idea. Um, and a lot of times it's based on, uh, you know, certain ethnic groups or whatever have certain body types, you know, or, or more likely to have certain body types. And we uh -huh. base it off off of uh you know one standard which i think is is problematic i think a lot of times what we think is overweight um can depend and you can be someone who is right on target who is really unhealthy 
you know, uh, internally and someone who is so-called mm -hmm. overweight or underweight, who is really healthy. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, those kind of objective measures sometimes are problematic. And I think that's something that the medical establishment has pushed that I think really we need to look at. I definitely do not agree with almost everything you just said. Okay, definitely, fair definitely not. No, I um I think so. I've got a bit of a problem with the fat acceptance movement in a, in a couple of ways. One, I think most people, most people who are overweight have tried to not be overweight because nobody wants to like be overweight. So, I, and I think the fat acceptance movements has popped up because it's so difficult for some people to lose weight. Right. And so it's like, okay, I've spent, you know, five years, 10 years trying to lose weight. I'm still gaining weight. Maybe this is just my body type and people can stop bullying me. Right. And so I think that's part of the reason the fat acceptance movement has popped up. But, but the reason people don't know how to lose weight at the moment, I seriously think is because they're not taught how to eat. And I don't think there's a body like there are, there are certain cultures, right. That end up gaining weight easier or that are more carbon tolerant. Like if you look at native people in Canada, the way they looked, you can see that in pictures in like the fifties versus now is completely different. So they seem to have less of a carb tolerance than like Europeans or people who have less of a carb tolerance. But I like, I honestly think carbs are the problem here. And, and I think there is objective evidence that if you're overweight, and you have less muscle mass because that'll that's an issue as well, right? Having like like you said, you can have unhealthy skinny people, which you certainly can. I had an autoimmune disorder, and I was skinny at that point, and I was sick. So there's there's multiple facets here, but being overweight certainly isn't healthy. And the fat acceptance movement is making it making it say like telling people it's okay because it's equally healthy, which is just not. But you shouldn't be blaming people. Although then again, it's, it's hard to say how much the negative pressure influences people to change. So yeah. I don't know, so maybe I'm a the, bit torn. When I think of the fat acceptance movement, I think of it more as um, some of the aesthetic ideas that we pushed. Um, and a lot of people, when you say a lot of people wanted to lose weight, um, sometimes it's because they're uncomfortable. Sometimes it's because, hey, my knees hurt, walking up steps or whatever. But there's a lot of that fat acceptance movement um, is based on beauty standards, um, which are you know socially constructed and have very little to what? do with nothing to do not with true. health. Why you don't think you just plop a hot woman in a group of people and like a obese woman and the men who had no idea about anything would be like okay it's equal? There's no way that's socially constructed. There's a reason for that like so there's evolutionary yeah. reasons why people find other people hot yeah Michaela I, well I'll just tell you this uh culturally I, I know you're Canadian if you were around some African-American men they would probably go towards the big woman you know what I mean? there's like there's different ideas that different cultures have of beauty um so I I think you know this is why you have women getting butt implants and breast implants and but trying the, to look more shapely and bigger. You but know. I think the point, I think if, if, unless I'm wrong, Michaela, I think the point you're making is, is that without any social construction whatsoever in the primary, like sort of the mating, the mating ritual of, of all biology, it's that when you're looking for a mate, which is fundamentally what about human, what human attraction is about is you're looking for things like symmetry and fertility and, and the cues that go along with, 
those relationships, right? So the idea of, of hotness is not merely a social construct to the extent that social um, conditioning plays a role. It's fundamentally a biological impulse. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah, but a, a lot of that, you talked about symmetry, but symmetry doesn't necessarily depend upon weight. That's oh, like, because I've read I'm that research just... where it says like hip to waist ratio, men, men like a certain seven. hip to waist ratio, because yeah. in our brains, it tells us this woman is fertile. So just like women like a square, you know, a more square jaw, because it's, you know, it tells us that that person is a strong person who is going to give you children in our right. evolutionary minds. But that has nothing to do with weight. You know, well, I mean? it's not exactly it's not exactly weight that people are, are attracted to. Like it's not stick thin people or and if you're heavier as a woman, then it's not necessarily a problem unless it's abdominal fat. So if you're carrying all your weight in your like your butt and your thighs, it's also a marker of health compared to having abdominal fat. So it's not sure. that surprising that people, you know, like the, the big butt, especially if they still have 0.7 ratio and it's not an abdominal fat because it's actually just perfectly healthy. It's abdominal fat that's the health issue. Yeah, usually. I mean, but there, you know, like, there are people with, with weight in their legs and in their hips where it's, you know, it can be, it, it can be unhealthy. Yeah, but generally speaking, they, they also have this abdominal fat. I feel like that seems to be the problem with men and women. If they're carrying specifically abdominal fat, that's been shown to be the problematic areas mm -hmm. of holding so, fat. More with Michaela Peterson in just a moment. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. So, you know, going back to this, uh, this concern about the pandemic and kind of the mistrust, I, I do think that like not citing the fact with any regularity that being overweight or obese was the signature marker of whether or not you'd have a negative outcome is a total dereliction on the part of the public health establishment. In the United States, like being overweight was never emphasized. And in fact, it's kind of the same way with all medicine, actually. They very little conversation in the public consciousness. Yes, your doctor may indicate to you, hey, like Jason said, hey, you should cut some weight. It'd be good for your health. But beyond that, the actual sort of like the public health messaging that we have, not a lot on that issue. I, I think Michelle Obama actually kind of tried it with the Let's Move initiative during her time uh, as uh, 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 as first lady. But beyond that, like it just seems like we've we've strayed from pointing to like the single most obvious thing. I mean, how long has the pandemic stretched since March, February of 2020? We're now in 2022. A public health yeah. messaging campaign that had revolved around cutting weight, eating healthy, getting exercise, rather than just hide until we have the medicine to help you, uh, would have been far more constructive. Yeah, I agree. It was, it, yeah, definitely. Get more vitamin D too. How about some research into why, why Florida has been able to stay open? Like obviously vitamin D is important, but, but mostly it's even if, even if yeah, we I mean, are. Southern California has vitamin D too. And, and, you know, they've struggled as well. And, and Texas yeah. has, has had struggles and Cal and Florida hasn't been great. Like they've, they've been up there among the, the highest uh, states in the nation in terms of, of transmission and, and hospitalizations. Um, but it's just, it's silly that we're looking at one aspect of a pandemic, right? We're looking at COVID and then we're not, we're ignoring all the effects of keeping people yeah. indoors and unhealthy. Like the increase, I mean, 
the increase in psychiatric medication, which is a huge problem because those are really hard to get off of. People don't usually get off of them once they start. So a huge increase in psychiatric medication and in mental illness in kids, fentanyl issues, people just on drugs because they're depressed because they're stuck inside. And so we've been like, oh, COVID cases and just boxed off this one tiny little, well, it's not tiny, but this one aspect of locking people inside or freaking people out for two years. Um, And then the other problem is, when is it going to end? Like if variants just keep coming out, is it, oh, you're only allowed out with a booster, even though you can still transmit the variant forever, right? Yeah. It's just, this is just ridiculous. I was in Serbia when, when the pandemic first hit. So in the summer, and it was really interesting to go from Florida to just kind of different area in the world and see what their response was and their citizens were well in a serious war in the 90s so they're not and i think it was so recent that they're like oh you're trying to keep us indoors one we don't have very much money so we need to work and two we've been through worse that was basically the um the average i would say like serbian thought but what they did was they tried to shut everybody down and everybody rioted and it was a huge riot. There was like tear gas. People were like, we're not getting shut down. And then they put tents in fields. So they put makeshift hospitals in fields mm-hmm. and just opened everything up and they didn't end up using the hospitals, but they had prepared extra hospitals in case everybody got sick. And honestly, I don't understand why places like Toronto who are missing hospital beds. Like, why didn't they just take a hotel and spend the last two years prepping the hotel for COVID cases and training students if they're out of nurses and doctors for specifically COVID? It's been two years. So why didn't we just empty a couple of hotels? They're empty anyway in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then just, I don't know, open things up. So at least you have the hospital beds. If the hospital beds are the issue, like how can the hospital beds still be an issue if you have two years to find more hospital beds? Yeah. We've seen a bunch of countries either in the midst of rolling back their COVID restrictions, or we do see um, some pretty healthy, uh, aggressive uh, protests happening on the streets of cities around the planet mm-hmm. uh, to, to include right here in the United States. What is it like in, in Canada right now? Is there is there a public groundswell against these restrictions? Yeah. So just, just to like, stay honest here, I've, I'm out of Canada. Like I'm in Austin right now and I moved to Nashville in September because okay. I was worried they were going to shut everything down again. And I was like, I can't do another stay at home mandate in the winter in Toronto. However, because I'm Canadian, I've been following it. And I believe it's this Sunday there, there's the protest, this truck protest. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but there mm-hmm. are truckers from all over Canada heading to Ottawa and their plan is just to sit in the Capitol. And I don't know if their plan is just to sit there and just screw it up so that nobody can do anything because it's full of trucks. But the last I checked, there were 70 kilometers long, long of truckers headed to Ottawa. And so, yeah, people have been protesting. There was a massive protest in Montreal, but it's not covered by mainstream media because I think they don't want to encourage it. So it's not really covered by mainstream media. But yeah, people are I mean, at some point, people are going to say they want to do weddings and they want to eat indoors in Canada and they're tired of like living in fear. So we'll see what happens. But the truckers protest is interesting. Very. Jason, do you think that any of these governments, including ours, have taken things too far at any point? 
Um, again, I, I think uh, the big thing is there's so much um, over these last two years um, that that's been unknown that, you know, I, th I think a lot of times it's easy to Monday morning quarterback and to think, you know, the, the retrospective introspective type of thing and say, oh, maybe we should have done this. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should have done that. Um, There's a lot of for this instance, is like a once in a hundred year pandemic that the world has never seen. I'm seeing um, some sentiment on the left, Jason, like for instance, the school closures, there's a lot of regret about that now. Do you, do you, do you share that sentiment? Do you think that that was a bad idea to leave schools as closed as they were in so many places in the country? Well, I, I think one of the things was, again, the unknown and particularly protecting teachers and protecting, you know, custodians and, and a lot of, you know, uh, the same thing that we had with the frontline workers. A lot of the times, the people who are filling up hospitals, the reason why in the United States, uh, African-Americans are twice as likely to die from COVID and, you know, three times as likely to be hospitalized is because a lot of them work jobs that, you know, they were on the front lines and they couldn't, you know, sit at home on a computer like you and me. Um, so I think it's a little bit, you know, I, I think when we look back, of course, there's a ton of things that we could have done differently. And, you know, perhaps those schools could have been opened safely and we could have had the right ventilation in there and we could have you know uh had people who were vulnerable wear their masks and and all of that um particularly once we had you know vaccines and and all the things that are supposed to keep us out of the hospital yes there there, there are a lot of things that we could do now that we're thinking in retrospect um, but i think at the time as we've stated when so much was unknown and everybody was bringing their own studies um, I think you have to err on the side of caution so that you don't have, you know, 1918 again, you know, so that you don't yeah. have this, uh, you know, thing where millions upon millions of, of people die. Um, I think so, both sides, both sides are trying to err on the side of caution, though. Like, it seems like liberals are trying to err on the side of caution by not having too many COVID deaths and conservatives are trying to err on the side of caution by looking at every other impact that locking down a country has. Right. I think both people are trying to, I think for my, I don't know, I don't know if you agree with that, but I think both sides are trying to save people or just doing it in different ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember I, I interviewed Anthony Fauci early in the debate uh, uh, in, the, in the pandemic. And um, this was before I had definitely developed a much more negative judgment of him. Uh, but when I had talked to him at the time, I had asked him whether or not it was his responsibility to synthesize all of these competing concerns, or if it was merely to give advice to the president who could then do that thing. Uh, and so in other words, like look at holistically at all of the costs to a society. And he made it seem like, you know, really it's about me giving advice to the president on COVID. And then it's his job to figure out how to make those bigger it decisions about sense. the rest of society. But the one, one of the elements that I look back on that and think it's a little disingenuous is that the public health costs of the COVID lockdowns, forget the, just the economic costs, the actual health costs were pretty tremendous. I mean, there were people who had very negative outcomes from being detached from their doctors and from screenings, uh, from being an, unable to go in for what people refer to as elective surgeries. But if you need a surgery, almost all surgeries are actually yeah. critical to your health. So the word elective is a way to it, it, it downplays, I think, uh, in, a, in an unhelpful way, how urgently so many people needed those interventions. And, and there were people who died as a result 
of that. And then finally, like I'm just looking at things like the cost to kids. I think the reason, Jason, I bring up the, the why the left is um, somewhat regretting the extent to which the teachers unions and others dictated the debate when it came to keeping the schools closed to, to excess is because the detriment to children was consequential, especially for early development. We're looking at places like in Florida, where um, I just saw a report this week that a speech pathologist in Florida indicates that her practice has absolutely exploded. Typically, it was a very small portion of her business dealing with children with speech pathology issues. Now it's a dramatic part of her business because well, communication problems that exist as a result of the forced masking and keeping kids apart um, has meaningfully impacted early childhood development. I hear that. Um, I think it's interesting. I, I'll be interested to see because Florida was one of the first places to actually open up schools. If their outcomes are better than say Massachusetts or Maryland, which sure. have some of the best schools in the nation. So because they've opened up and they've had this year-long head start, I'll be I'll be interested to see if they have better outcomes yeah. than some of these these other states. Um, I'm skeptical. What a horrible I'm test, skeptical though. right now. Like, what what a horrible test to just test out. Like I, I know in so I'm in Tennessee right now and I've been and this is just anecdotal, but most of the kids and my daughter included got ridiculously sick this year, not with COVID, but with like normal colds that they get because toddlers get colds are just worse. And from what I've heard, like I said, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if there's data to support this either, but from what I've heard and what I've seen, people are sicker because they don't have the immunity, the natural immunity built up from getting these colds and flus that they wouldn't the last year. Like I got ridiculously sick in the fall too. And it wasn't COVID. I had mm. COVID. It was way worse than COVID. I got pneumonia. Um, and that was in the fall. And so did my kid. And so did a whole bunch of kids at school. And it was like, oh, we went to the doctor and they said, yeah, we've seen this because people haven't been exposed to colds and flus as much in the last couple of years. And right. then even the speech thing, if that's true, that's a pretty nasty test to just test on the nation. It was like, oh, Florida kids can talk better now. Like, that's not great. It's just the, the, um, the, <laughs> how large this study is on people is scary. And the fact that some people are forced into partaking in this study when they don't want to is scary, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I, I just think, yeah, the end result of all of this, um, well, I hope we get to the end so we can study the end result and say, boy, we should avoid those outcomes yeah. in the end. But yeah. I do think um, that, I, I do think it was interesting uh, I was kind of amazed by how compliant the public was to so many of these things, like I, especially in the United States. I might, my impression was that there was going to be a lot more of a fighting spirit against restrictions. And I think maybe, it be, maybe it's because of the trust element. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, people trusted uh, the words that were coming out of the public health establishment by and large, or at least enough of them did, that things started shuttering and people kind of did it. But I don't know, did, Michaela, were you, what did you think of kind of the societal response to all of these lockdowns? It doesn't have to be just be in America, but around the world. People are more compliant than I thought they would be. Definitely. Um, definitely. Canada in particular, I don't know what Australia is like, but they've been having a rough time. But Canada in particular is, it was weird. Like you talk to people and you could poke around a little bit and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, this is ridiculous. I'm tired of this. I don't want to wear a mask. But nobody did anything. It was like very few people would actually say anything. Um, and then I think 
California maybe was similar. I've been to California a few times and it's pretty, depending on where you are, it's similar to Canada. But then I'm in Nashville and it's like COVID doesn't exist in Nashville. And people, it's so strange to be able to fly somewhere like, you know, San Francisco and see people's views there. And they're like, you know, stay away, stay safe. And they're angry if you're not kind of complying with that. And then you go to Nashville and it's like, oh yeah, if any of those liberals come here and try to impose their masks on us, we have guns. Uh And it's that bad, right? It's like one side, this is kind of why I started opposing views. It's crazy. And there's so much anger on both sides. Well, no, it's insane for, for people on the right to talk like that for sure. But on the left, it's like, oh yeah, well, if you're unvaccinated, you shouldn't get access to the hospitals. It's like, what? Both sides are crazy. But I'm definitely more with the Nashville. I mean, that's why I'm in Nashville. I'm like, yeah, I don't want you to impose restrictions on me again without evidence. Right. And I don't want you to impose restrictions on my kid. And so people are pretty up in arms about this because it's impacting their families. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, and it's, it's weird because in, in, this, in this discussion that we've had, like what you opened with, I think I agreed with almost everything you said. I mean, we had some like some minor, you know, disagreements, which I think like got magnified. But in reality, in terms of taking control of your own health, uh, you know, in, and the thing was, you didn't read a website, you read peer reviewed studies. And I think that that is different than many people who are going and doing their own research and they're reading, you know, and I'm sure though a lot of those peer-reviewed studies were from some of the universities that you uh, probably sought treatment from. You know what I mean? Like you, you said you went to Mass General. Maybe you didn't say Mass General, but you said somewhere in Boston. Yeah. Um, you went to, you know, and I'm sure some of those studies came out of Harvard, came out of, you know, Cambridge and came out of some of these, you know, reputable places. And you were, you just went about finding them. And I think what you were saying, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me, was somehow that hasn't, you know, that information hasn't filtered to, you know, your, your doctors. Um, yeah. The information is there. It's in the mainstream. It's available, but it hasn't filtered to your family practice doctor or your, you know, whichever doctor that you need. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I do think that that, you know, that information needs to uh, to get out quicker and needs to get to the to the right people. Um, but in terms of taking care of your own health and, and looking at your diet as a way of, of maintaining good health or, or sometimes even improving good health, I think we're we're 100 percent in agreement there. I know I've had ailments. And I cut out gluten. I don't eat gluten as, as Vince knows, cause he's eating dinner with me. <laughs> he knows, you know, I don't eat <laughs> gluten. I don't eat dairy. I don't eat any of yeah. that. And that's why I'm almost 44 years old and I have a six pack. Just let me oh, yeah. real quick. <laughs> You're you looking know. good. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah point, point being, no, I, I think we, we a hundred percent agree on that. We'll probably disagree on some a- aspects of um, the pandemic and, you know, and a lot of that goes into, you know, some politics. But when we talk about that, the only danger, I think, is that when someone like you who does serious research, you are the daughter of a researcher, and you have uh, a good understanding and grasp of these things. um, And you're a psychologist as well, correct? No. No, Okay, well, 
you know, you, you certainly are, are uh, an educated person. Um, I think the danger is, like, for example, in some in my community believe in uh, someone you may have heard of, maybe not, but there was a man named Dr. Sebi. You know, have you ever heard of him? He's, he was an Afro Honduran man, and he had all these cures. He said he could cure, you know, uh, AIDS, not HIV, AIDS with like oh, fruits and vegetables. Oh, I've heard about this, yeah. Right, and, and I, yeah. you know, I, I get worried and, you know, he's become like a meme favorite. And I get worried because particularly people who are in certain communities, um, communities that have, you know, uh, less access to resources that they will believe, you know, perhaps, oh, I have HIV or I have AIDS and I can cure myself by eating a passion fruit. You know what I mean? And that that's what worries me. And I think there can be, I think there can be a unfortunate path between someone who is well-researched like you and then people who will listen to your podcast and then listen to someone else's podcast and then listen to a quacks podcast. And then they'll start thinking, oh, well, this is the way to cure disease. And I don't need to go to doctors. As a matter of fact, I don't trust doctors. They're trying to kill me. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, like doctors, <laughs> like I hate to be that person because it, it makes me sound like a crazy person, but no. medical error is one of the leading causes of death in America. So, you know, the, and doctors don't cure diseases. Like maybe if you have cancer and you get surgery, surgery is on another different level. Like mm -hmm. if you need surgery, then that's, that's serious and you need surgery, right? But for autoimmunity and even like mental illness, there isn't a cure. There are medications, but if you look at peer reviewed studies, like the efficacy of those medications, they, they don't really work. Right. So no, I you know, avoid the doctor, go after diet and the doctors aren't trying to kill you, but medical error is like one of the leading causes of death. So I don't know. So I'm so biased here. I'm so biased here and I, I'm totally aware of it, but I spent, like I said, I spent 16 years on immunosuppressants. I lost my hip and ankle. Yep. I set, the ankle was installed improperly. I was in chronic pain for 10 Ugh. years. And then I changed the way I ate and all my symptoms went away. And so I'm a bit disillusioned. Yeah. And you have yeah. every right to be, you know, when, when Jason is talking about kind of like what we consume, you consume all these competing stories and facts and you try and synthesize them, try and, you know, figure out what's best for your own life. The reality here is that the idea that there's going to be some sort of central authority that you can turn to for unimpeachable wisdom is just yeah. not true. It just doesn't, yeah. that, that does not exist. And there's a, there's constant attempts to suggest though, that there is. So this is what, this is the failure of the public health establishment. This is the failure of the legacy news media, that the biggest purveyors of so-called myths and disinformation are often those institutions. So as a result, it does demand that you become uh, a very literate consumer of of information. And yeah, sometimes you're gonna be led astray, but you should constantly kick the tires and you should not be yeah. you should not be enabling a censorship regime to suggest that there's only a, only a certain group of people should who should be allowed to convey information and that others who can convey conflicting information are are some sort sort of disinformation merchants on their on their face. And and there's like a very dangerous impulse built into that. And I kind of see it everywhere, Michaela. I feel like 
that a lot of our institutions are looking to be gatekeepers for who's allowed to even discuss these things. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think part of what I'm hoping to tell my audience is what I believe, which is just don't trust anybody. Like, don't trust anybody. And just because people have a title doesn't mean they're more trustworthy. Just do your research. Unfortunately, like reading and reading from a whole bunch of different sources and doing your research is hard. But um, I think part of the reason I was sick for so long was because I blindly put my faith in in an established, and it, no wonder it's the medical community, like lots of people put their faith in the medical community, but I think it would have been more helpful for me as a kid mm. if I'd just been told, hey, we don't know what's wrong with you, go figure it out, right? And then I wouldn't have kind of outsourced, you know, my brain to the medical community. And anyway, yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, we shouldn't just be getting information from one group of people. And I think social media is helping that, but the censorship aspect is concerning. I totally yeah, agree. I, again, I, I think I agree with you 100%. I think you have to understand that it's your health and your body. And when you do visit a doctor, you should ask questions. Um, I think a lot of people think, okay, this is the expert. I can't ask questions. But mm -hmm. I think um, there's a situation, you should ask questions of, of anyone, you know, any, any professional. Yeah. If I were to sit on a couch with your dad and he said something to me, I'd be like, okay, but wait, why? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I think you should ask questions. Right. And if and they act like they don't have to explain it to you, that's a huge yeah. red flag. Yeah. yeah. And, and advocate, advocate for your own health. I'm right. I'm hundred percent there with you. I, I just worry about, and I know, you know, this is a trigger for our right wing audience. I'm a trigger for our right wing audience anyway, <laughs> because I'm a left wing guy and I'm a black guy. So, but anyway, it's just the, left that's a whole part. different story, <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I walk in and I'm a trigger, but I'll just say this, that I do fear when it comes to health care. And if we were talking, the thing that I, that I worry about with the term medical establishment is I think sometimes we group doctors in with people like big pharma who have, you know, I think doctors actually want to help people. They actually want to heal people. Probably yeah. all, if not, if not most, all of the doctors that you saw were like, how can we help this kid? Well, I guess oh, except, for, sure. for, the, except and, for the doctors who actually are corrupted by big pharma. I yeah, mean, yeah I mean, there that, are them, but you know, I've known a well, lot of physicians in my life and the vast majority of them are not corrupted by big pharma. Mm -hmm. I think, and well, medical researchers and, are. Well, they're corrupted a little bit because you get approached and I have like two minutes and I have to run. Okay. But I'm, I wanna answer, I wanna answer this first. They like, because of how it's set up, particularly in America, it's like, okay, your doctor, you go through a whole bunch of medical school to try and figure out how to help people, right? And then that medical school is, it's so influenced by the pharmaceutical companies, it's crazy. Like you learn, this is the disease and this is the drug to fix it, right? And a lot of those courses are paid for by pharmaceutical companies as well. So that's sketchy. But then also when you're a doctor, you get kickbacks for using certain medications. So it's like, oh, you, you have depression. You know, here's a plethora of antidepressants. I'm going to use a certain one because there's more of a kickback. Because what difference does it make? They're all kind of the same. So I think the way pharmaceutical companies influence doctors in America in particular is really dangerous compared to other places. Like if you go to Eastern Europe, there are laws that are not that Eastern Europe is like a, a great place to be either, but 
there are laws stopping pharmaceutical companies from giving doctors kickbacks that they yeah. don't have here. I think that's probably true. You know, again, I, I'll have to ask people, but I think that's probably true for like your um, your private practice doctor, but your doctor at a hospital, I don't know that he's getting a kickback because he gives you a, he you know, prescribes you a certain uh, drug. I mean, it, it could be, like maybe, I, you know, I have a, a lack of knowledge there, but I think, you know, they approach the pharmaceutical reps, they approach private practice doctors and try to get them on board and they give them, you know, the merchandise and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, again, my fear is that when we say go out and do your own research, that that opens up, you know, the realm of mis and disinformation. And yeah, people but who could doctors probably aren't get fixing help. things. Like doctors, yeah, but helped how? Like being put on a psych med they can't get off of or being put on immunosuppressants that literally just don't really work. Otherwise, right. autoimmunity would have a cure. Like the, right. what's the risk? The risk if you have an autoimmune disorder of going out and doing your own research is you might get better. That's my opinion anyway. All right, yeah, I mean, I, I think about Steve real quick. Okay. I, I know we got to wrap <laughs> things up, but I think about Steve Jobs who could have been treated for he could still be alive right now making better iPhones, but instead he drank papaya juice rather than getting chemotherapy and he's dead. Well, cancer, cancer, maybe like go see a doctor, right? Autoimmunity, I think, falls into a bit of a different category. But again, category. people might not go to the doctor if they didn't mistrust doctors when they have symptoms, they won't even find out they have cancer until it's too late because they'll be thinking they can drink papaya juice. Yeah. You know they won't saying? be able to get screening because of COVID policies. Yeah. I, I think I think just to sum this up, even doctors need to earn your trust. I think that's the key here. Uh, Michaela, right. Michaela Peterson. Yeah. Michaela Peterson, thank, thank you, you so much. I know you're short on time. We're grateful for all the time you spent with us and we hope we can do it again sometime. We really Definitely. appreciate this. Thank yeah, you this so much, Michaela. It, it was nice meeting both of you. That was yeah, a fun great, conversation. Great conversation. Thank you. Nice thank to you. meet you. Thank you, Michaela. <laughs> Bye. Bye.